The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Should Confucius Institutes be shut down? There are hundreds of these centres across six continents, funded by the Chinese Ministry of Education, with the stated goal of public education on and cultural promotion of China. They offer classes on language and history, and some would say that they help to plug a crucial shortage of Chinese language skills in host countries, especially in the West. And yet, these have become deeply controversial. Criticism of the institutes range from their CCP-sanctioned curriculum, which do not include sensitive topics, to allegations of espionage and erosion of academic independence with Confucius Institutes at the core. Sweden closed all of its CIs two years ago, and universities in countries including the US and Japan have also shut their centres down. This is a live debate in the UK right now. Last November, Security Minister Tom Tukenha confirmed that the government would be seeking to ban Confucius Institutes in the UK, repeating a pledge that Rishi Sunak had made during the Tory leadership race. But is this the right decision when the UK also suffers from a shortage of Chinese language skills and understanding of China? In this episode, I'm joined by Charles Parton, Senior Associate Fellow at the think tank Rusi, who worked in or around China as a diplomat for two decades. He is an expert on Chinese interference and espionage in the UK. Charlie, welcome to Chinese Whispers. Can we start by talking about what Confucius Institutes are meant to be doing on the tin, according to the Chinese side? Well, the label says they're about teaching language and culture. And that's fine. That's what we need. We need more language speakers and we need to understand China's culture better. So that's admirable as far as it goes. But unfortunately, it goes an awful lot further. Well, let's talk about that in just a little bit. And then just so that we understand a little bit more about how institutionally they work, they are attached to universities across the world, are they? And then they offer kind of additional voluntary classes for university students to partake in. And it's language, but also you mentioned culture. So are there history lessons, cultural lessons, that kind of stuff as well? Yes. I mean, I I think from a Chinese point of view, from the Chinese Communist Party point of view, they are there to explain China, to push China's, the Communist Party's narrative. But beyond language and culture, there are some that are attached to business schools and aim to make introductions, get businesses together. There are up in Huddersfield, there's one that's pushes more towards the science and technology angle. Mm-hmm. And there's one in London that associates itself with, with traditional Chinese medicine, etc. So it's a broad spread. And yes, in one sense, it is comparable to the British Council and, and institutes like that. I mean, all countries have those. But there are other senses in which it's not the same. Yes, well, <laughs> let's talk about that because it is funded and set up by the Chinese Ministry of Education. So it's fundamentally a party related. It's not some kind of, I mean, the divide between party and state is getting ever closer in China anyway. But for something like the British Council is not party political, is it? it's government led. But so can we talk about the relationship between the Confucius Institutes and to the Chinese Communist Party? Yes, I mean, I think I would go as far as to say that, in effect, these are organs of the Chinese 
Communist Party. And I, I, I think the division between party and state has almost disappeared, to, mm. to be quite honest. So a Confucius Institute comes under now, it used to come under a thing called the Hanban, which came under the Ministry of Education, which is attached to the, the propaganda department, under, the party's propaganda department. There's now... I think that the word handband became a little bit of a dirty word. And so it was, they've now set up an NGO, which is administers, but, but it is no different. The addresses right. tend to be the same and the personnel are often the same and, and the links to the ministry and, and the propaganda department are exactly the same. But it's, it is different from things like the British Council. I mean, I, I, you know, perhaps the easiest for British listeners is, is to, to consider the difference between the BBC and the Xinhua, Chinese Xinhua News Agency. I mean, the BBC, sure, it benefits from, in a sense, taxpayers' money, but it is independent of, of government and often very critical of the mm. government. Xinhua is not independent of the Chinese Communist Party and is never critical of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think that's you know, the same with the British Council. You can make the same mm-hmm. comparison between the British Council and Confucius Institutes, that the British Council is independent of government, even if it's in support of our values and British interests in many ways. And that's the main concern about these centres then, isn't it? Why is there a Chinese-funded centre of education embedded in international universities uh, where you can't talk about sensitive issues? And also, more severely, some critics allege that there may be instances of espionage, uh, of spying on students or on the university at large, or influencing how the university teaches about China, which are some of the criticisms that, for example, some British China hawks have put out during this past. Parliament. What do you make of those criticisms? Well, I, I do sometimes feel that critics of Confucius Institutes go overboard. I mean, you know, we do have our own values which say that that we believe in freedom of speech. And, you know, that in a sense applies also, well, it definitely does apply to the, to the Chinese Communist Party. We don't have to swallow what the Chinese Communist Party mm-hmm. says, but it's probably not a bad idea to listen to it and understand it better. So I'm certainly not one for saying that, that these are wholly evil organisations and we should we should ban them. They are an instrument of, of the Chinese Communist Party's policy. Let's be aware of that. Let us, if we wish to understand more of Chinese language and culture, fine, go to courses at Confucius Institutes. And are we going to suffer that badly from that if it's confined to language and culture? Or even there are, there will inevitably be elements of, of propaganda within that. But, you know, take someone like me. I mean, I learned my Chinese almost entirely by looking at pieces from the People's Daily. <laughs> I am not a communist. Um, and, if anything, and that probably radicalises you the other direction. <laughs> and, and indeed, you're absolutely right. In, uh, when you've been brought up on a diet of the People's Daily, you indeed swing to swing to the opposite pole. So, and, and there are plenty of other sources of information that will give you a rounded idea of China. So even if a Confucius Institute is not going to put on talks or consider things like what we call the three T's, Tiananmen, Tibet, Taiwan, nevertheless, you are going to pick up some useful skills. Mm. And I don't think you're going to come out at the end of it as a fully paid up member of the Communist Party. So let's be a little bit more calm about these things. That said, there are other aspects of Confucius Institutes, which are are deeply worrying and and where we should take measures. Okay, what what are those? Well, in a sense, the Confucius Institutes are part of the United Front strategy. You're going to have to explain the United Front as well, I think. (laughs) Well, yes, and the United Front Work Department has become the the sort of bogey of the press. Everything bad in our countries that comes from the Communist Party is through the United Front. But the United Front strategy is, is rather more important. 
And what it says, in essence, is that you identify the main enemy and that you move those who are sympathetic with the enemy to a neutral position and those who are in a neutral position between you and the Chinese Communist Party, you move them into a favourable mm -hmm. position. So you have that intent, identify the main enemy and move everyone towards the Communist Party and away from that enemy. And in international relations, the main enemy is America. Mm -hmm. And that's the basis, as one might say, of Chinese foreign policy. So the aim of the United Front strategies is to move everyone away from that and in sympathy with the Chinese Chinese Communist Party's position and outlook on the world. And it does that through a variety of measures, some of which are perfectly ordinary public diplomacy, and some of which at the far end, you know, one might say at the far end of the spectrum is, is espionage, mm -hmm. and things in between, which are some of them, frankly, not acceptable. So where I think we must be much more careful about Confucius Institutes is the fact that they are embedded in our universities and have direct influence or indeed interference on the way our university courses are taught mm -hmm. and on our academic freedoms and where they act as a forward radar for the intelligence services, for the United Front Work Department and for things like spotting where the science and technology talent is and people are who can then be brought in to push forward the Chinese Communist mm. Party's attempts to occupy the high ground of, of the new science and technologies. And, and this is a, an enormously important programme for China. It's been going on since the 50s. It's like uh, the Thousand Talents programme well, and it's other things much more like than that. that. Okay. It is that if you wish to achieve the second centennial goal, as Xi Jinping talks about, which is to become, I, I always forget the, the order of the adjectives, but it's a, you know, a modern, civilised, harmonious, socialist, rich country. <laughs> Translate that into ordinary English and it means we are going to be the number one superpower and we're going to knock America off its post and we're going to arrange the world that suits in a way that suits our interests and values. Now, if you're trying to do that, one of the main ways of doing that is to become the dominant science and technology power, which is what the States is at the moment. Because then you, you, you get the rents, the monies from the industries that, that sells, come mm. from that. And when you've got money, you get geopolitical power. And so there's a massive program that the Communist Party has to sweep up all the new technologies and sciences through whatever means, ranging from you know, the worst sort of espionage and cyber attempts through, as you say, the Thousand Talents campaign of getting people in into China, through paying our scientists to research matters for them through buying up our small startup companies with new technologies, etc., etc. Mm. And I think, yes, for sure, because everybody who is connected with the Chinese Communist Party has this, this duty to help the, the party, the state. The Confucius Institutes will be radaring around and passing back names and interesting contacts that can contribute to this. So I, I think that we shouldn't make that easier for them and we shouldn't allow them to be in our universities doing that sort of work or indeed altering the diet mm. of Chinese politics that our universities are teaching. Okay, so Charlie, you've already mentioned the different ways in which Confucius Institutes have different focuses. So what I'm getting is this image of almost like a franchise rather than like a centrally directed thing. So when you're talking about things like passing names back of people who might be promising in China's tech-powered future, is that something that all Confucius Institutes do? Or are we just saying that some of them, if they were to do that, would not be okay? Well, I think, again, I think it goes much broader than just Confucius Institutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you are closely connected with a party or you're an organisation in a foreign country that has links to the United Front, 
i.e. to the party, then all the people connected with them have the duty, if they're right. Communist Party members, of, of helping this push sure. by the Communist Party. So CIs do it, but then so do some business associations, so, so do some of the associations for the reunification of, of China, etc. These are some of them, many of them, United Front organizations. Mm -hmm. Many Chinese who come from mainland don't do that, but the party would certainly hope that they would and yes. would try to encourage them to. So it's not CI specific, mm -hmm. but nevertheless CIs are you know embedded in our universities and that's a, a good place for that sort of work yeah. to be carried out for obvious reasons. And then when you talk about the shifting of opinions that those who are neutral to you are moved into favorable, those who are against you are moved into neutral if I were just an average university student going to a CI for language classes or to learn more about China, what kind of narrative would I be fed through these classes? Because I think that's one of the concerns is that is it actively pro-communist or is it just there are certain things like three T's that you've mentioned? Presumably there are more letters to be added to that with Hong Kong and Xinjiang as well. They just wouldn't be mentioned well, I've not attended classes in, in these CIs, but I, I imagine it's a spectrum. And at one end of the spectrum, yes, you probably wouldn't hear, almost certainly wouldn't hear things like the three Ts and, and things that are critical of China. But you may not be fed stuff that's immensely mm. positive. I think it probably depends on the individuals who are running the courses and, and, and running the CIs. And, and some would be more enthusiastic and proselytizing than others yeah and individual staff members maybe too yeah but I think I think I agree with your previous point about this which is that surely we trust our university students to be much more <laughs> free thinking and critically minded than just thinking that they're going to be swallowing whole whatever the narrative that they're being given is especially if they're interested in enough mm. in China that they're probably doing a degree in China they're getting lots of different sources of information it's not exactly like studying China in China itself which is the kind of education that a lot of children have growing but up. That's true, but what I would like to see is that if CIs continue, they do so independently of our universities. They're not mm -hmm. embedded in our universities, just as, the, you know, and they can get their own premises and, and conduct their own business according to UK law, and that's, yeah. that, that's very important because there has been some discussion as whether they're actually uh, in line with UK law when it comes, say, to equality of employment and, 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 and other issues. But that's a separate issue. Where I am in agreement, I mean, there's been a long report by the Henry Jackson Society. I don't use the word ban, but I think you impose the conditions which mean that they cannot operate within universities in a way that allows them to influence what the universities mm. are doing and teaching. So, you know, if a university wishes to buy in the language training services, that's a different matter. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't actually have them within the fabric of the universities. And why not go for a complete ban then? Because this is a politically controversial topic at the moment. Rishi Sunak has said during the summer and his security minister, Tom Tugendhat, has again recently said that CIs will be banned under this government. Why not just ban them? You know, they're organs of the Chinese Communist Party. What, what, good, <laughs> what benefit could they possibly bring that we want to keep any part of it? Or is it just, as you say, promoting free speech in the UK? It's just not a very clever way of operating. It's not a clever policy to ban things. And Generally, we don't like banning things in the in the UK. Much better is to impose the conditions that you wish them to operate under, and then it's up to the CIs whether working under those conditions is something that means that they wish to continue or they will voluntarily close. And the other aspect of a ban is it's a very emotional term, and guess what the Chinese Communist Party do? They'll ban the British Council. I mean, they, they've, I, they've not sure, explicitly I'm, said it, but do you think that is...? Well, I think it's highly likely... 
what we should be doing is concentrating much more on the idea of reciprocity and insisting that the way the CIs operate in the UK is the way that the British Council operates mm -hmm. in China. And the British Council is not embedded in Chinese universities. So let, let us impose those conditions. And if the CIs wish to continue, that's fine. It's possible even that they may still have offices in universities by renting the space, but not being given it. Yes. And then in a reciprocal fashion, if the universities wish to use their language services, they will have to buy them in too. Mm -hmm. That would be fine. Because at the moment, you've got CIs funded by the British government to provide Mandarin teaching, I think, as part of one of these golden era legacy measures. I think that's right. You're saying we should stop that. Well, it's quite un it's unclear to me what the mechanisms for, for that are. But certainly, I think that that is, I mean, we're funding them in one sense because the universities are giving them free accommodation. And, and that is worth a lot of money, particularly if, yeah. if you're the LSE in the centre of London. Whether they're going beyond that, I mean, I, again, I don't in principle object to the concept of buying in language services, mm. even if it comes laced with a little bit of party speak within it. I think we can survive that. But it's much more the interference that goes way beyond that by being almost part of the university, which I think is something we have to call halt to. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I've read a report that you penned in Rusi in 2019, I think, differentiating between interference and influence, where you say that influence, I mean, you can tell us what you say, actually, but, yeah. but I think often we don't understand or don't appreciate the difference between the two and anything that is related or linked to the CCP we see is a no-go or pass a red line. But, but you did draw some very interesting distinctions there. Yes, I mean, I, I think we have to be clear that some things are acceptable. We do them. I mean, we do public diplomacy. We push our foreign office and other government-backed organs, push the British British line and British values. I don't think it's not part of our value system to ban others doing the same. But it has to be... I mean, where I think we define interference, the Australian Prime Minister, Mr Turnbull, first, I think, came up with the phrase that it shouldn't be covert, coercive mm -hmm. and corrupting. As long as there's transparency and as long as it's in line with the law and as long as the financing is clear, and I would say in the case of, of Confucius Institutes, it's not part of the fabric of a university, then I don't think we should ban them. And you could even make an argument that we, we need to understand the way the Chinese Communist Party thinks more, but we need to be much more aware of it and wary of it. Mm -hmm. Just on the language part of things as well, because... That is something that's come up quite a few times in this conversation already. I mean, Chinese language capability is something that this country desperately needs, especially younger generations who are interested or target audience for these CIs. So how beneficial do we know our CIs at providing that? And I mean, if we close them, are we kind of kneecapping ourselves in understanding China for the future generations? It's a matter of, as ever, Money. I mean, we, we do need to invest in this and we should invest in a way that is consonant with our values. But there's, there's room for some, a certain amount of compromise on that. Because as I said earlier, I, I don't think that our students, whether that's at school or at university, are that foolish that they just swallow it all whole. I mean, mm. there's plenty of other sources of information. And, and indeed, our press, one might say, is inherently hostile to Mm. Chinese Communist Party and, and thus to China. So there's, there's plenty of balancing material. The main thing is that we inculcate in our, in our young 
the value of learning Chinese. So Confucius Institutes also have programs where they outreach programs to schools where they, they teach Chinese. Fine, as far as, as that goes. I really don't think we should be paranoid about what they teach in that respect. Mm-hmm. And one suggestion that has been put forward by some politicians is that we get rid of Confucius Institutes and we bring in Taiwanese agencies who also speak Mandarin Chinese as providers of language sources. I mean, what do you think about that, Charlie? I mean, my first instinct is great, but my second instinct is, well, it's a slightly different type of Chinese to the kind that the People's Republic of China speaks and writes because it's traditional script and there's different accent, all that sort of stuff. But what do you think? I don't think it matters where you get your sources from. As I, in a sense, keep harping on, we just need the right conditions, that it's in, in, in line with our values and systems and is not going to subvert our universities or whatever. Mm. So I don't really mind where a teacher comes from, whether it's from the mainland China or, or, or Taiwan or Hong Kong or wherever. Actually, I in, in terms of Taiwanese teachers, I don't think it's a bad thing that we get exposed to the complicated characters. I mean, I actually did a year of my language training in Taiwan. And mm-hmm. I'm very grateful for the fact that I did because I can read Hong Kong and, and Taiwanese yeah. literature. So that's important. And when it comes to accents, when you go around in China itself on the mainland, you bump into so many extraordinary Very true, accents. yeah. And I was ever grateful that I'd spent time in Taiwan because you would get such one accents from the, this was in the early 80s, <laughs> ex-Air Force people from the KMT. Uh-huh. And most of the soldiers came for Hunan. Try try understanding the Hunan accent. You've got Shanghai Chinese businessmen. You've got the local Taiwanese accent and mainlanders, as well, you know, people from Beijing. So you've got a whole variety of accents. And actually that was very useful because... When you go to the mainland, they don't speak standard Mandarin, for sure. No, that's definitely true. But anyway, so, yeah, I don't think it really matters where the teachers come from as long as we're learning and yeah. as, as long as they abide by the values of our country. So, Charlie, if I understand you correctly, then, you, you, you're essentially saying that the capacity in which Confucius Institutes, if they interfere in the way that China is taught about in the university curriculum itself, then that is a problem. But if they're only there paying their rent, not being funded by universities, offering language skills, if there's a bit of party propaganda mixed in there, you can take that. The wider question is not about Confucius Institutes, but about United Front and Chinese interference in our universities in general. I think that's by far the more important question. Yeah. And I, I would divide that into two. So you have as it were, the humanities and the question of, of freedom, academic freedom and freedom of speech and mm. interference there. And there are some problems there, which we can talk about. And secondly, the science and technology piece. And actually, that is by far the, the most important. That is a real a real threat to our national security, to our future economic prosperity, to our data privacy and, and to, our, to our values. So we really do need to protect that better. The CIs, as I said, pay a, in some places a, a slight role in that in the mm. sense that they are targeting opportunities for for the Chinese Communist Party to exploit our science and technology. But the problem is far bigger and and, and wider than that. And to be fair, the British government has has woken up to that and is trying to take measures to counteract that. But I think there's a long way to go. Mm. Well, I think politicians instinctively are also attracted to headlines and CIs provide a good headline because people have heard of them, you know, they're a thing, an entity that you can kind of attack, whereas, you know, the kind of problem that you're identifying is much harder to fit into a headline, speaking as a journalist. But I do want to delve a bit deeper into that because I I hope that politicians who are interested in China are listening to this. What kind of breakdown of the issues can we give them, which is that just firstly on your humanities point, what are the concerns that China might be interfering in our universities there? 
Well, I mean, if I talk about science and technology, because I'd, I'd identified that as, as perhaps the, the major sure. threat. As I say, in the, in the longer term, we should not be doing a number of things which we are doing at the moment. That is to say, there are some technologies which are militarily sensitive. Mm-hmm. And indeed, it's, sometimes it's difficult these days to tell between military and civil technologies. I think that distinction is eroding. But we should certainly not be building up the capabilities of what is already a hostile power and could become a very hostile power. And Through university-to-university university partnerships. Yes, and, and we've seen a, a lot... I mean, there has been research in this and publicity on this, but mm. we see some of our universities helping in programmes which are just totally unsuitable. Mm. I mean, there was one recently in a case where a leading British developer of our own modern armaments had been helping Chinese, talking to Chinese about things like ballistics and railways. Right, OK. It's just, just unacceptable, but... <laughs> But it's um, an awful lot deeper than that. I mean, the whole question of if China manages, as it is attempting to do, to dominate the top, the new areas of science and technology, that will give them immense economic power, and that translates into geopolitical power. And they are very deliberately looking at these technologies and trying to create dependencies of us Mm. on them. Mm. And this also gives them the ability should they need it, to interfere very greatly in our critical national infrastructure if it's entirely dependent upon some of their products and components. Or indeed, short of you know what they call the kill switch, putting pressure on us because we don't like your policy and mm. by the way, you are very dependent upon us in your critical national infrastructure. And I think we've woken up to that in things like Huawei and mm-hmm. 5G technology. And I think the Americans have certainly woken everyone up on, on matters on, on semiconductors. But there are a number of other areas, and, mm-hmm. and one I'm particularly concerned about is cellular IoT modules, as it happens, which are even more pervasive, perhaps, than, than yeah. 5G. Internet which, of Things. The Internet of Things. And we're not really yet taking the measures to protect mm-hmm. ourselves for the long term. And all that starts, I think, with much of it, with the research in our universities. I mean, that's just that's just a part of it, but an important part. I thought it was interesting in your Rusi note, but you did say that nuclear was OK. Do you still believe that, that Chinese involvement in British nuclear is um, acceptable? I must say I'm, I'm becoming a little bit more wary of that. Um, <laughs> because of the dependency issue? Or... I, I did, in fact, say that only up to a certain percentage. So sure. you know, that was the, the issue of, of, of Chinese participation in one particular nuclear project. But, but I, I don't think in any critical national infrastructure we should be too dependent upon the Chinese. Charlie, when we talk about kind of the ways, covert and overt ways in which China's trying to gain more knowledge in science and technology, especially when we talk about it in the context of universities, I'm always concerned, as you might expect, being a Chinese ethnic person, about going the other direction too fast or or too far. The McCarthyism that we've seen a lot of the times in America, where one of the State Department's programs to kind of root out questionable Chinese scientists actually have exonerated a lot of the people that they named and shamed and has now been shut down. So where do you think the line lies or what is the right approach to prevent something like that from happening here? Yes, well, first point I'd say is you will notice wherever I can, I talk about the Chinese Communist Party and I, and I actually I don't even talk about usually about the Chinese government, I talk mm. about the party because mm. it's is the party. And I think we must differentiate very clearly between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people. They, of course, hate you doing this because they they like to conflate the two and accuse you of being racist. But I think we've got to be very wary of that. So that is the first point. But yes, we do also have to be aware of 
you know, the United Front programs and, and the immense effort that, that China is putting into interfere in our countries and, and to gain access to science and technology and, and other sensitive areas. And that's very difficult. We've got to do it sensitively and always be conscious that this must not then become a sort of anti-Chinese against our, our own ethnic Chinese citizens of Chinese origin. It's difficult. I, I've said in the past that I think we must insist that members of the Chinese Communist Party, for instance, in our academia, declare that. Mm. But you think that it's okay for them to be in academia? As long as we know about it, yes. Mm. I mean, even, you know, let's say in the politics department, someone who's a party member with that sort of background, who will almost certainly have come from mainland China, but that's why they, in a sense, they're a member, will know a lot about the party. And we need to know that. We need mm-hmm. to, to understand the way the party thinks and where it's coming from. But it needs to be... it. You know, must avoid the covert, coercive, and, and corrupting element of it. So I don't, I don't object to the idea of party members being there, but I think we need to be conscious where their loyalties lie. Because if you are a party member, you have sworn the party oath. And although I can't, because I'm not a member, recite it off by heart, uh, <laughs> it makes it very clear that you will always obey the Communist Party. Mm. You will keep its secrets and, and, and will work for a lifetime for the Chinese Communist Party. And I think that's something that we have to be aware of and wary of. Mm. Well, very interesting, Charlie. We have to leave it there, but I would recommend any listeners who's interested in this line between interference and influence to check out Charlie's note for Rusi. Charlie Parton, thank you so much. Pleasure, Cindy, as always. And thank you for listening. Now, if you want to hear more about Confucius Institute's work in other parts of the world, you could check out uh, my interview with Raffaello Pantucci, author of Sinostan, who I had on uh, last year to talk about China in Central Asia, where Confucius Institutes play a huge role in promoting Chinese soft power. So you can tune into that. I'll put a link in the description. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.